0: I think we know God's love is, is unconditional and unending and his, his faithfulness reaches out to us. But I think like Mephibosheth, well, we have to accept the invitation, we have to move towards the table. The king invites us to his table, but we, Mephibosheth could have said, no, you give me all these lands and houses, I'm going to go back and, and, and live a good life. But he actually comes to sit at the king's table, and we, I think we can, we can say in our heads we know about God's love, we know it's unconditional, we know about his kindness. But there's something that stops us sometimes taking our place at the table. And I, I, sometimes that's shame.
1: Welcome to this week's Calling a City to Life, a podcast by Queen's Park Baptist Church here in, what is today, sunny Glasgow. And I'm going to say good morning to everybody because it is the morning. I, I'm just, I'm just dealing with it. embracing it. I'm embracing the fact that it is the morning. Uh, we don't have Brody with us today. We do, in fact... We don't actually even have Sandra here today, as the Zoom image that I'm looking at says. We actually have Steve who needs to learn how to change the settings (laughs) so that it says Steve on the camera and not his good wife's name.
0: Morning, Steve. How are you? Morning, great. I'm good, good, good to be here this morning. Great to see you all smiling faces. Yes, yes. (laughs) And
1: we're joined by Ian. How are you this morning, Ian?
2: Yeah, I'm really good. Whether this is morning, afternoon or evening, um, I'm in good form. Thank you. <laughs> good stuff.
1: And Jack, how are you, Jack, in the other room?
3: I'm good. I'm good also. I just feel that it's sad if the, the morning thing is turning into the trope of the show, isn't it? But it's kind of like, I feel sorry for the people who it's evening and they feel like they kind of relate to but something. But their day's
1: already gone, by. Yeah. But <laughs> We we're just about to start off in our day, and, and their day's already passed. We feel sorry yeah. for them, but if you're listening, we are grateful for you to listen. Uh, do spread the word of the show. Do send a link to this to a friend that you think might appreciate it. But this week we had Steve speaking on Second Samuel nine, and the story. Okay, here we go. Drum roll. The story of Mephibosheth. Yeah, well, well ten. Does that work about right? It's great. Yeah, good, That's good. good. There's, there's a thing called semantic satiation, which is when you say a word too often, that it just starts to sound weird. And I've got a funny feeling that Mephibosheth may be about to be one of those words. So I think Steve, you'd propose that we just called him Mike.
0: Yeah, I mean, I did think of shortening it to myths, but that has other connotations. <laughs> yeah, let's not go there. Let's so not go there. I thought Mike, Mike might be a good one, really.
1: Mike, we we'll call him Mike. Anyway, good stuff. Steve, you preached on this passage at the weekend, so why don't yeah. you give us a quick 60-second summary of what you said?
0: Okay, well, it's a one wonderful story uh, about an invitation to the table of the king. So um, it's a short story of Mephibosheth experiences... David's kindness to him. So Mephibosheth uh, is uh, in a sense an enemy of David, he's in exile, he's uh, isolated, uh, and David thinks that uh, he remembers his covenant with Jonathan, this promise that that Jonathan and he made to look after each other's families, this deep commitment that goes beyond just a, a simple agreement and uh, so he remembers that that he asked if there's anybody left from Saul's house. Mephibosheth's name gets mentioned so he brings him into the palace and he offers Mephibosheth uh, mercy and grace and a place at his table and it's that 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 theme of being invited to the table which is I think this story is a wonderful picture of God's kindness to us shown in his mercy and his grace and the possibility of being invited into his family to sit at the table of the king and no restoration Um, and i wanted particularly to focus on an aspect of restoration which was shame because i think shame is something which can affect many of us and to kind of point at how the gospel um, can deal with our shame
3: great summary i want to kick us off this morning by talking about Hesed, which we had talked about also last week, the attribute of God as loyal love. And one of the conversations we'd had last week was in reference to Ruth and Naomi and whether Ruth staying was actually, was it to do with who Naomi was or was it to do with who Ruth was, that her character was in fact loyal love. And I think you mentioned hesed at the start yesterday and I was wondering how much that was revealing that David also was demonstrating loyal love towards Jonathan in the covenant that he had made. And wondering how much of it, it not, well, for me, it wasn't to do with Mephibosheth and who he was other than that he was related to Jonathan. But it wasn't, it didn't matter what he was like. David's covenant with Jonathan was the covenant that he had. And I'm going to tell a funny little story from my last couple of weeks that I feel illustrates what I'm kind of wanting to push into a little bit this morning. So Richard and I were dog sitting for a friend the last two weeks and this dog attached itself to me. And if I sat down, she would sit on my knee and if I lay down, she would lie on me. And no matter how many times I kicked her off, pushed her off, asked her to go and be elsewhere so that I had personal space, (laughs) she would keep coming back. And I increasingly realized over the week, especially because we'd been having this conversation, that it was actually nothing to do with me. It was actually because that's the nature of the dog. That's what she does when she finds her person. That is just the way that she behaves. And I felt like yesterday when you were talking it's it's a bit of a weird illustration (laughs) but it was that sort of sense of the dog was behaving how the dog behaves because that is her nature she will replicate that in any situation it is not about me and i was just wondering how much that is an aspect of god that we don't fully comprehend or, or for me, I feel like I don't get it enough. I still, I still have that sense of responsibility to myself that, well, God quite likes me because I'm pretty all right. Like, I, I'm, I'm quite nice. Like, I'm not horrible. I'm trying to do okay. So therefore, his love for me must in some way correlate to that. Mm. And actually realizing that it truly has not to do with that. His loyal love towards me is because that is who he is. I just wondered if we could discuss that a little
1: so compare God's love to a cockapoo. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, great great illustration, actually, Jackie. Yeah, I think God's love is like that. I mean, as I said yesterday, God's love is, um, I, I think one way of understanding God's kindness, hesed, this covenant, is unbreakable love. God's love is unbreakable, and I think, therefore, unconditional and uh, unending. Uh, so I think that, uh, in a sense, it's part of the nature of God, who he is. If you read the Old Testament... So often, uh, God talks about his covenant faithfulness to his people, and uh, of course we see that best in Jesus. So yeah, it's it's to do with the nature of who God is. And I think the picture of David just extending this grace to a man that most people at those times would have thought unworthy of it, um, is just a picture of God's sort of unbreakable kindness extended to us, nothing to do with who we are.
3: Ian, do you think that we comprehend what God's love really is like?
0: Of course not. And I mean, that's the whole of the Old
2: Testament is just this ongoing collection of narratives, and and even one long narrative of God's covenant faithfulness, which is is not returned fully. Um, You know, you have... You know, it's the whole thing. You know, when Israel was a, a child in the desert, I found I found him. You know, and God commits to to loving God, not, loving Israel, not because they're important or significant or or together, but God draws them out to indicate that He loves that which is unlovable, and He loves that which is unlovable with an un, unbreakable love. And when you were telling your story, it reminded me of a story by the author Douglas Adams, who wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And he has this lovely story about a cloud, a cloud that just loved a human individual. I think this guy's a truck driver. And this cloud, (laughs) no matter where this guy went, the cloud Uh went. And the cloud just loved to rain on this guy. And Everywhere he went, he thought, why is this cloud? Why am I always living my life under this cloud? And from the other perspective, the cloud is going, I, I just love this truck driver. I just want to be with him. I want to just go where he goes. And and I think there is that sort of difference in perspective, you know, where we can't really comprehend that God is chasing us down, that God is following us up, that God is absolutely consistent. Because we are not. And we get so easily uh rocked off our our wagon you know things kind of come in our way and we you know we, our our love even for those that we are committed to and that we love you know gets rocked and we have to restore it and repair it and get back to where we were but yeah it's just so different and the whole Old Testament is a is trying to reveal that God's love is is this continual consistent passionate commitment towards us.
3: I, th- I think that's the thing that I really noticed even just in the last few days of having this dog was that I was at moments frustrated with her and really not wanting her to sit on my knee. And I actively would, you know, not violently, but I would actively push her away and it did not deter her from wanting to come back. I was like, oh, how often am I like that with God? That my, that I... Um, ungrateful, rude, angry with him. He's inconvenient. It's not what I want at that moment in time. And it doesn't stop his relentless pursuit.
0: Isn't, isn't that the story of, of the Israelites journey through out of Egypt into the promised land over those 40 years of God relentlessly, not just leading, but pushing, pursuing his people Um, who wander away, who do all sorts of things to kind of disown his love. And yet God is uh, committed to them, come what may.
3: Yeah, it's amazing. I just feel like the facets of it, it, really just in the last couple of weeks, I feel like I am being really challenged about that facet of his nature. And I know it's the main part of who he is. It just feels like something that you feel like you've known since you were tiny, if you were raised in a Christian family. But yeah, it's that sort of, additional thing of the the extra layers being revealed.
2: And maybe it just moves on to where, you know, we're going to go in a few moments, uh, which is about shame and our capacity to accept and receive the reality. Um, you know, if, if shame, uh, in, in a way, is this personal disqualification, this inability to receive favour or to recognise that we have worth and value, then that actually becomes a filter which stops us from receiving or expecting or living in that continual passionate love of
0: god yeah and when you when you were telling your story about douglas adams and the, the cloud raining on the truck driver i just thought oh that's a picture of shame that follows many of us around and it just keeps raining on us all the time and and what god does through his his unconditional commitment to us his loyal love to us His Gradually, kind of remove that cloud, dissolve that cloud, so the sun can break through into our lives. I do think shame is, shame is a real issue. I think for for many, uh, many of us, uh, even for believers. In fact, particularly perhaps for believers.
1: Let's delve into the passage uh, a little bit and build the narrative because it's quite a complicated passage there's quite a lot there it's not actually a straightforward story when you look at it in a bit detail and I think there's some some hidden shame in a number of places within this passage so it starts off by David asking a question which on first glance is like okay that's a fairly straightforward question is there anyone in Saul's house left but then you get to thinking well wait a minute. Jonathan only had one child and Jonathan's like supposed to have been your best pal. How did you not how did you not know this already? So is David trying to kind of first of all kind of go, well, wait a minute, I should have been, you know, doing this already. Why is it taking me to this stage to try and fulfil this this promise that I made to my best friend? back in the day, that I would look after his family when here's this uh, disabled child who's away living off in a far country, while at the same time, the servant is living at large, basically living as if he was the son within the household. So you've got a two-pronged thing here. David asking a question that my reading was, you should have known the answer to this question already. And then the second point, which is that uh, Ziba is still known as the servant of the house of Saul, not known as the servant of the house of Jonathan. So the wealth is still being viewed as being Saul's and Ziba, who we find out later on has like 15 kids or something, is clearly living as if they were the inheritor of the blessing from, the, if in effect, David had promised Jonathan. So I, I so that's the kind of start of the story. Can we unpack that a little and then we'll we'll move on to then David going, sending out to go and find... Because Zippa seems to be slightly taken aback by, oh, wait a minute, he's remembered and I'm going to have to go and find this person. Because it doesn't take long for Ziba to go, yeah, I know exactly where he is. It's like, well wait a minute, you're supposed to be working for the House of Saul of which M- Mike Mephibosheth is part of that house you know exactly where they are and yet you're the one living at large in the inheritance what do we make of that
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs) interesting interesting view from the start i mean i think i think that if you read further on into samuel after this particular story Mm -hmm. you find out that perhaps Zebra's not not got pure motives in anything that he does uh, and there's probably, you could see this story of Zeba um, protecting his own interests, mm. living, mm-hmm. living, you know, and I think that's fine. Although in terms of David's view about, about, about Mephibosheth, you know, Saul had lots of sons who had lots of sons and uh, David's been off fighting victories. So this is the high point of David's career in Samuel. He's, he's kind of subdued everybody. He's won all his victories, everything settled. So he's been, he's been pretty busy in the meantime, right? I just imagine him sitting on his throne and just reflecting, perhaps, on life okay. and, and just wondering, oh, yeah, of course, I made that. I mean, how many of us sometimes we reflect on life and we think, yeah, I made a promise to someone once. I said I'd do something and I hadn't followed it through. Uh, maybe I just need to do that. I mean, I think that's in that story for me, that we okay. make promises to people and then we in the spur of the moment sometimes and then we forget about them. And sometimes we just need to follow through on those promises. Ian? Yeah, I think that's a great answer, so I don't really want to add very much to it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it is
2: interesting as well in that a lot of these successions of kingly um, genealogies, the objective is to destroy everyone who has a, a claim to the throne. Um, yeah. And everybody who is a son of Saul you know, is under threat of being exterminated. Uh, and I think what's really interesting here is that, that David reverses that. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. there has been a measure of um, of destruction that has has happened preceding this, but you know he is he is now looking to restore, and he doesn't see Saul's family as being being a threat, which probably also suggests that he is in that place of prime um, authority. Um, but his intention now is not to eliminate anybody who could have a a counterclaim to the throne, but actually to to bring them into the the courts and, the, and actually to the table of the king, which is really quite radical. You know, you kind of destroy your enemies, don't you? You either destroy them or keep them close. Um, but this is kind of a different thing entirely. This is about um, putting favour on those who have a counterclaim to your authority.
3: It is interesting, isn't it, that he doesn't feel the threat because he's so confident in what God, the position that God has put him in. Yeah that he doesn't sense that yeah absolutely
1: although it's probably clear that Mephibosheth does like one of the reasons why he's hiding out is because he views that there might be a threat Mm -hmm. and I think the coming of Mephibosheth back to the palace back to David is there's a little bit of cowering there of Oh my goodness is this is this curtains yeah. is this uh is this the end is this seems to finally getting my comeuppance look at me i'm having to be carried i can't even walk in here under my own strength to if you like take it like a man or like a king or like you know like an usurped king of you know i'm having to be wheeled in or dragged in or carried in uh to david and i think that's a really important thing to realize. The position that Mephibosheth thinks he's in—it's mm. not one of. It's a bit like the Joseph story. Oh, here come, here come the brothers. Oh, we're all in for it now. Uh, and then, like in Joseph, the the the, the tables are turned. And this mm. Lodi bar, which is where he's hiding out, means no pasture. So he's coming from a place of absolute nothing. He's got a disability uh he's having to be presumably looked after hand to mouth he's got no no abilities himself and he has no homeland no nothing very reflective i suppose on where we all we all start from so the shame bit of this steve identify where the shame is in the story
0: well i think richard you've kind of hinted at it already i think I think the fact that Mephibosheth is in exile, in isolation, that he was the grandson of the king who perhaps should still have been king, um, that he's fallen from that position of kind of royalty, uh, hiding out in exile, and also that he's he's lame. Uh, you know, disability uh, was a, you know, we, we, we do a lot to help people with disabilities today, don't we? And we, we want to restore dignity for them. But in those days, someone with a disability, you know, if you had a disability, you couldn't serve in the temple, for example, that uh, viewed very differently. So I think he carries a lot of shame on his soldiers, shoulders for what, what once was and what might have been. Um, and and um, I can imagine, him kind of, shame often causes us to keep our eyes low. We don't want to look people in the face. And I can imagine Mephibosheth bowing low to the ground because he can't look David in the face because of this burden from the past He's not who he thinks he ought to be, um, and I think that carries that. That's a weight of shame on him, and I think shame is something we all carry as well. But uh, we might want to hold off on that for a moment.
1: There was there was quite a lot, or in this weekend service, there was a couple of words that were given, some of the songs that were sung, and you know. While it may sound good to say, yeah, it was all coordinated and it was all planned out nicely, it simply wasn't. It doesn't work like that.
0: I had no idea what uh,
1: songs Karen had chosen at all. Exactly. So there were a lot of songs that it was about bowing down, about prostration. Some of the words that were given were about leaning into things, about listening listening up and listening down. And prostration, I think it's verse 6, and also later on in the passage, can't quite remember, where is it? 12 or 13, somewhere like that, It's a couple of times in the passage, the idea of God really leaning in to hearing us and getting alongside us, like a really active, not just a, I'm God, I can hear everything, of course I'm listening to, but a real coming down to the same level. And Mephibosheth, if anything, is definitely at a different level being unable to walk than David is. Reflect on that in our relationship. Actually, in what Jackie said earlier on about the kind of Hesed hesed love.
2: I think for me, just one of the things that really stood out from what Steve said was this idea of the initiative to go looking for Mephibosheth, you know, which kind of came from the king. Um, The one thing, one of the things that Shame does is to make us hide uh, and shame in a lot of senses is is that kind of fear of being exposed being seen to be uh, a failure or or who we are being deficient in some kind of way and not coming to light so he's he's in this hiding place um where he feels i guess some level of safety and security but the king goes out looking for him um and i forget exactly the phrase but uh, you know it's it is very active. Um, mm. Mm. You know, yeah, so so there's this intentional seeking out. And, and I think that's, again, an expression of that hesed, isn't it? That that God is, is coming to look for us. Uh, and that's really
0: powerful. Yeah, I was reminded of the, in preparing for this story of uh, in Luke, about the great banquets where... Um, you know, those who are those who are sort of well-to-do, the successful, the famous, whatever, uh, kind of turn down the invitation to the banquet in the parable that Jesus tells. And uh, the master tells him, well, go and bring in the, the lame and the poor uh, and so on. And, and he does that. And so there's a purposeful seeking out in that parable, you know, those who are on the margins, those who perhaps wouldn't normally make it in human terms, a bit like Mephibosheth, I think, who gets invited to the table.
3: Shame has that horrible way of... I think both for those of us in faith and those of us who aren't of, of disqualifying us endlessly from almost everything (laughs) at times. I can remember having a conversation with a relative once who said, Oh, I couldn't go in that church. You know, it would, it would be struck by lightning kind of thing. You know, that, that horrible misconception that actually church is full of the people who are, you know, completely perfect and without, flaw and actually church is just full of the people who have found a savior to redeem them they're as flawed as anyone else yeah absolutely um, and i think it's too often we can be, get into that place can't we of thinking that we are responsible for our restoration in, in some way you know we i, I think it's that thing of no, no no it's all it's all the blood of jesus and then we still end up believing the lie from the enemy that we have responsibility responsibility to it which it also sort of engenders this whole sort of shame thing that it brings out that element of well therefore you failed because it you know you are responsible for it and actually unless unless my salvation is 100% what Jesus has done for me then I'm not fully comprehending all it is that he has bought for me that I can't I can't do anything of my own strength, I cannot do anything for myself. And there's such a liberty in discovering that and it's, is it the verses in Romans that say that's not a reason to go out and sin, is that Romans? You know, you don't abuse grace on that basis, but still yet understanding that it's coming back to the loyal love. It's coming back to the fact that what God has done for me, the love that he has given me is everything that I get to stand in today. And it is everything that restores me and redeems me and it is the most powerful beautiful picture that is unparalleled anywhere else and the story just captures so much of it
0: i I think yeah I, i think you're right i think i think we know god's love is is unconditional and unending and his 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 faithfulness reaches out to us but i think like mephibosheth we have to take we have to take our steps towards the table we have to Accept the invitation. We have to move towards the table. The t- king invites us to his table, but we, Mephibosheth, could have said, "No, you have given me all these lands and houses. I'm going to go back, and 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 live a good life." But he actually comes to sit at the king's table. And we, I think, we can we can say in our heads, we know about God's love. We know it's unconditional. We know about His kindness. But there's something that stops us sometimes taking our place at the table. And I, I, sometimes that's shame. Sometimes. Uh, let me explain, what, if I can explain what I mean by shame. I think, I don't just mean the things that we're embarrassed about. Um, I think shame is actually at the core of, of the fall, at the core of salvation. I think we talk, about, look, we talk a lot about guilt, and guilt is important, I think. But if you go to the story in Genesis uh, about Adam and Eve, it starts, it's bookended by these two phrases. They were naked and you knew no shame. Then there's the fall, and then it says they were naked and were ashamed. So I think I think that's a story about shame. We talk about Adam or Eve taking the fruit and being guilty of doing that. That's true, but what what was in her mind before she took the fruit? What prompted it? And I think there's something about us as human beings wanting to overreach ourselves, and I think there's this kind of unsettledness in life that is because we're not who God wants us to be. We're not in the relationship God wants us to be. And there's this kind of angst in life that I think we all carry. And I will call that that this sort of shame, if you like. And I think that's something the gospel deals with, not just our guilt, but our shame. So all the shame we carry from things being done to us and said to us, and our unease with ourselves, I think we have to step into the invitation to the table and allow God to start a work of restoration in those areas.
3: Richard has already referenced that Mephibosheth may, may have been, well, w- was feeling likely apprehensive on his return um, and not unsure what the response was going to be. And for so many of us, we we still have that, even years into faith, where we have the thing where we feel we can keep hidden from God because we're concerned about what his response is going to be towards us. I mean, that that's my experience. <laughs> Maybe that's just me.
2: <laughs> I think we quite often understand that that shame speaks to this inability to receive favour or honour or value and it's a kind of internal police state, you know, where you're self-critical and um, disqualifying. But I think there's another aspect of shame in which it actually um, is the experience of, of believing that we are unworthy of connection and, and, you know, so you have that in the Genesis story that you have a piece of, of relational disconnection. Um, and I think when I'm operating out of a shame place, one of the things that I do not want to do is to connect more profoundly with people. So it actually, if you think about our fundamental issue as being one of broken relationship with God, with people and the planet, then shame kind of reinforces that fallen position. Um, and that's why it's the it's the devil's work. You know, it's actually that fundamentally speaks into our lives disconnection and disconnection from God. And I think that's why there's the story of a table. It's not just coming to a position of of honour and of favour and of forgiveness, which it certainly is in this story, but it's also a place of community, which, which Steve really brought out as well. So the kind of restoration of shame is actually a restoration of community and our um, our. Status is, is, is affirmed and and reinstated by being in community, and so that's a kind of core part I think just of the shame journey too.
0: Yeah, I just think that that um, that line where it um, uh, says Mephibosheth will eat at the table of the king like one of the king's sons is about coming back into family. You know, you're invited into the family, um, and that's you know as sons and daughters of the King of Kings were invited into family. Uh, to, you know, to sit at, at the king's table. I think that community, that communal aspect uh, of re- restoring relationship, first of all with God and then with one another around the table is really, really important in this story. And I think maybe this is a, a
2: little bit of a question of mine for, for Steve, because I think one of the things that we can do in community is to, um, to control the table and... and <laughs> you know, to exclude people as, as a punishment or as a mechanism of discipline, or we fear that if somebody comes to the table and is uh, in community with us and who has, maybe has a history or whatever, you know, that should we actually be at table with this person? Because that's what, what's that saying about me? Um, and I think that we actually can use shame as a weapon, or as um, a mechanism for enforcing a particular type of behaviour or, or discipleship, do you think that's
0: that's a danger, Steve? Yeah, I certainly think it is that we. Oh, yeah, there's a there's a place for, for for discipline in 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 our lives and in churches, of course, as well. But I think, you know, when we, I know a church recently that uh, excluded someone from communion because of something they had done, and I kind of felt, okay, it's a judgment in a sense, isn't it? And yet. I'm not really worthy either to come to the table, but I'm just invited because of God's unconditional said love towards me. You know, who am I to say that um, I'm worthy and they're, and they're not? So I think, yeah, we can, I think we need to be open with our table. We need to be open with our relationships. And I think, you know, in church, we need to be open across, across, across cultures and across, across ages in our church.
2: One of the things I kind of like about this story is that Mephibosheth is still crippled, disabled. When he comes to the table, it's not mm-hmm. that, all right, you can mm-hmm. come to the table if you get your legs sorted. But I, but, I know, but the way I kind of perceive it, and maybe I'm reading a little bit into it, is that his, his injury is kind of covered by the table. And I sort of see that as, you know, God's grace covers our injuries, even when they're not totally healed and repaired. And I think there's something about that in community that, that God gives us a grace to cover the injuries, the failures, the sin that, that we bring to the table. And we don't have to become completely um, sorted and tidied up to, to qualify for for that community.
1: Yes, there is one table. It is the King's. It's not like those Christmas dinners you attended as a kid where there was like, a little table off to the left where the kids sat or, you know, the the weird auntie and uncle or something, I don't know. But uh, yeah, there is just the one table and it's the king's table.
0: I just think that the, the picture of the table is such a beautiful image, isn't it? You know, of, of, of sitting there, eating and drinking together, sharing stories with one another, you know, having fun and some serious conversation, some real deep sharing. I mean, we were out with a family on Friday night uh, and we did that. And it was just glorious to to do that. And I think that picture of us as church being invited around the King's table to share together in real life, real intimacy, the hard stuff and the good stuff, I think is just a rich, rich picture.
1: Maybe we should reorganize all the tables downstairs in the church so it's just one big table rather (laughs) than lots of little tables. (laughs) Can you imagine trying to walk from one end to the other? well you know don't do with the exercise of having to walk around a bit more a few more steps and our counters
3: I think I have a real sadness that I know I think we referenced this the other week as, as ever with this podcast we seem to kind of keep touching on the same issues all the time which is sort of wonderful because then it, it, it reveals that we're hanging around the same kind of concepts about God but the sadness that in our culture now particularly with cancel culture actually in many ways it feels like societally out with the church, we are <clears throat> writing people off. You know, as soon as someone has messed up and it's known publicly, you're done. You know, no one is ever going to speak to you again. They don't want to be known to be with you. If they associate themselves with you, their own careers are over. If they're famous people, you know, they feel like I can no longer speak to whomever because then I will no longer have an advertising deal with whatever. And everything about it has been paining me recently, genuinely paining me. Because I am so overwhelmed with the sense of this is such utter nonsense. Let he who is without sin, you know, cast the, cast first, the stone. first stone. Is that mm. correctly quoted? I don't know. Mm. And the sense that we are creating within society this this shame. We are we are throwing it at each other, and the person who is actually standing, at, the one who is standing at the side, without shame for us is god it's it's the irony of ironies is that amongst ourselves as people we are we are deciding that somebody is no longer able to be set with us and it's so heartbreaking
1: yeah there is quite an element of rubber hitting road with this discussion like it's all very well talking about accepting people with shame when we're like yeah that's that's kind of shame's all right you know we'll accept you but you know somebody comes into the church, comes into the table, with let's say because as Jack, as you say, cancel culture. What, you know, let's say somebody pitched up who everybody knew what had gone on because it'd been all over the papers, and they came in and they were wanting to sit at our table. Mm-hmm. That's really where the challenge, I think, comes. And I, I, I don't have an answer to that. Thankfully, I'm not
2: in charge of the church, so I don't need to have an answer. That's <laughs> Ian's job. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think just to push back on you, Richard, I I, I think, you know, there are people who come and go or part of our community who, for various reasons, might be regarded as um, unacceptable in other places. And I think it really is up to all of us to draw into relationship because actually it's not so much even the kind of formal approvals disapprovals acceptance whatever it's it's those relational connections that people have that tell them that they're accepted or not accepted um and actually sometimes people overreach with that you know because they are maybe so broken um but at the same time you know we need to find ways of of receiving people and holding people um even when they're maybe craving attention yeah. um, in a way because
1: the power is not just in being at the king's table the power is in the fact that everybody else who is in a better circumstance is also at the same table that you're at and it is the gathered community supporting each other supporting the person or the individuals who are really struggling and we're all going to go through that at some stage some very publicly some not so publicly and it's it's that kind of gap one of my kind of favorite films is those kind of films whereby the the, the kind of hero the main character goes off and gathers the people from beyond the stars to all fight the big battle and it's a bit like that it's a like kind of Narnia type thing you know you get every or Lord of the Rings you get everybody together and I guess that's what the reflection of the table is which is it's the fact that we're all sitting there as well it's not my father just wasn't invited to the king's table and was sat there by himself him and the king it was a full table
0: and, and I think as well that um, we don't get to choose who sits at the table it's not down to us and I think we need to keep reminding ourselves of that, that it's, uh, that it's God who invites. And our, our challenge then is how we reflect that open invitation, that kindness, uh, as church and as individuals.
1: enjoyed that. I hope you all enjoyed listening to yeah, it. Yes, me too. We are gonna finish the way we normally do with one final thought for every So Ian, give us your final takeaway thought for today.
2: I think it's maybe just uh, following on from what Steve has said there that you you don't get to choose who you sit beside. Um, You know, it's God's family, it's the king's table. And yes, we get to sit with the king, but the king has the same favour on people that we maybe find it difficult to uh, to appreciate and receive. But when it's the king's table, it's not my table. uh, And so I need to reach out accept the people that are around about me. And I think just maybe I think my challenge over the the sermon really is, you know, how am I doing that intentionally? Um, you know, particularly people who maybe I find are, are a little bit more different or can't return the, the hospitality that I would want to extend. So
1: Yeah, the thing the thing with the big table is you all have to pass the food to each other. It's not like <laughs> everyone's not just within arm's reach yourself, mm. you do have to engage. Jackie a final thought from you?
3: I think I'm going to be stuck with my cockapoo image. I think <laughs> of my of of that thought that no matter how much I push God away, He is always pursuing me. As as Steve had referenced the goodness of God song, His goodness is surely running after me, mm-hmm. and uh, I I am going to intentionally choose to wait for it and to to not keep running.
1: Good stuff, Steve. You preached it. Give us a final thought. Well, I think I think
0: thing that stands out to me is that the people around the table are my brothers and sisters and uh, that brings me back into a relationship with them and uh, if you know anything about families we don't always see things the same way we sometimes fall out but we're still family and we work through those things and I think that's what we can model as God's people a family
1: Great stuff. Well, thank you all very much for taking part. Thank you, everyone who's listening to, for downloading and listening. Please do leave the show a review. If you're listening on iTunes, Spotify, whatever, just click the wee five stars and write a wee bit of text. Or if you're on Spotify, do send us a voice memo, a question, which we'll use later on in the year, no doubt. Uh, but other than that, thank you all again for listening. We'll see you all again next time. Goodbye. Okay, bye bye,
0: bye.